2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 11. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you service. Um, well, we started 2 Corinthians, just a quick update on our land. Uh, many of you know we have, uh, have a contract on six and a quarter acres of land down Route 15, about two miles from here, and uh, the title was not free and clear. Uh, the uh, seller apparently did not know that when they put it up for sale. It's gone through the court system. We had a ruling from a judge that essentially pushed the decision off. He gave uh, them, the seller, some requirements to advertise for a missing person as part of a will from a long time ago, a person who uh, the seller, it's a relative, but the seller has not heard from in decades. The judge said that on May 11th, if uh, the, that person had not presented themselves, that then the title would be clear, we could buy the land and move on. So please pray. All that to say, our part is to wait and uh, wait with faith and just move on. So hopefully on May 11th, we'll know more. But um, in the meantime, we're continuing to work on designs and other parts of the project. But uh, the land portion is just kind of in limbo for another month or so. Well, we are in the book of Second Corinthians um, after a couple of weeks where we're dealing with Palm Sunday and Easter. So um, I want to ask a question because Paul deals with this word today. We heard this word sufficient over and over and over again. So the word there, sufficient, uh, can mean a bunch of different things in the Greek, but it can mean to be qualified for something can mean to be competent in something. It has these sort of shades of meaning. But this word sufficient is a Second Corinthians type of word. I want to ask you a question. What does it mean to be qualified? Think about your jobs. For those of you who are stay-at-home moms or for all of us who are dads, think that's part of your job. Are you qualified? Qualified to be a dad or a mom? Qualified to be a grandparent? Qualified to be a teacher? What does it take to be qualified in your world? You know, when you go into a doctor's office, you kind of hope they're qualified, right? How do we know? But how do we know whether they're qualified or not? What do we base it on? 
Well, usually when I go in first time, right, I'm looking for the, the things on the wall, right? I'm thinking I'm, I'm looking for, you know, where they graduated from med school. Do they have their board certification? But, you know, as, as the old joke goes, somebody had to graduate last from med school, right? It's no guarantee, but that's what we look for in that field is qualification. How about me? Do you know what my qualifications are to be standing here? You know, any of you can start a church, right? No, no qualifications, at least in our country, to start a church. You can have the, uh, the, the Boone, Boone Baptist could be open tomorrow if they wanted to, <laughs> right? You can do it. You just, you, all you do is, uh, you know, send off your 25 bucks and um, register and, you know, you've got it. You're qualified. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean you're competent. I have a master's degree. Does it mean I'm competent? Not really. That's not what makes competent. Paul's asking these questions because remember, the context of this chapter in this book is Paul's been accused of not being the kind of guy that by his critics in Corinth of someone who's an appropriate and adequate leader. And they've come at him with, look, you suffer so much hardship. You're not the kind of guy we should follow. That's what we've been dealing with the first two chapters. And this, he's getting, you're not qualified. What makes you think you can be an apostle? I mean, I could call my, I could call myself an apostle today, right? I could. Call myself a bishop? I call myself anything I want. Does it make it so? Let's back up. If you've got your Bible, look at the very end of chapter 2. And he says in verse 17, or the end of verse 16, actually, where we left off three weeks ago, he's talking about this idea of being a slave to Christ in a triumphal procession, and that through his suffering, the fragrance of Jesus is being spread, the aroma of life to some and death to others. And then he asked this question in verse 16, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for these things? Who's sufficient to walk out the calling and to do what God's called you to do? Are you? It was a very interesting book. It's fascinating. It was called A Surgeon in the Village. And this guy, Dr. Delanta Elagala, he was a Harvard-trained neurosurgeon. He now practices in Lynchburg, Virginia. But he took a hiatus and he went to Tanzania. And he began to practice neurosurgery in a hospital in Tanzania. And he learned at the course there, there's actually two neurosurgeons in the whole country. Any idea how big Tanzania is? Right. 50 million people. Okay. So if we were going to compare it to the U.S. with 300 million, that would mean there were 12 neurosurgeons in the U.S. You're going to you know, kind of compare that. There are 4,000, just so you know, in the U.S. There are two in Tanzania. So here he is in this hospital. He's working there for about six months or a year, just giving a portion of his time back. And he realizes, it. I mean, he's got people coming in every day. He's doing surgery after surgery. And he realized he's about to leave, and there's nobody within, you know, to do this when he leaves. So, okay, that's all right. We won't throw you out this time. So, the, I was thinking about to say, somebody else preaching here? I'm not qualified. It's so bad, they're turning Tim Keller on during the service. I hope it was somebody good. Let me just put it down. All right. So, 
Anyway, all right, well, okay, so the doctor, yes, back to the story. So the doctor says, okay, so he grabs a guy there in the, in the hospital who's clever, and he has some medical training. He said in the book a little less than what an EMT here would have, a bit less than that. No schooling, no high school, no college, no med school, no nothing. And he, he takes this guy, his name is Emmanuel Mayega, and he says, Emmanuel, come here. I'm going to show you how to do this. All right? It's, it's not brain surgery. Oh, actually, it is brain surgery. <laughs> he says, but you can do this. And so over the course of about three months, he teaches him how to remove tumors and go in and do brain surgery. And this guy now, 10 years later, has, has done thousands of procedures. And he's not qualified. There was a big stink because doctors in Kenya and other African countries said, we get, we, no, hold on, there's got to be some standards here. And Dr. Elagala, before he left, said, we can talk all we want about what qualifications you want. I know people are dying from something someone could do if they were qualified and competent, if they were sufficient for the task at hand. And I've made them so says, I've appointed someone who is sufficient. And so this morning, Paul says, who is possibly sufficient to live out this Christian life and do what I'm called to do? And Paul's answer is, certainly not me in my own strength. Let's look at what he says. I'm going to skip the first few verses and come back to them in chapter 3, and I want you to look with me at verse 4 of chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. Such is the confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we, he and Timothy, and the other apostles that are ministering there are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. There are a number of Greek words for this word sufficient. The first one he uses, and he uses them all throughout the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and we're going to see them all. We're going to slow down at each one because it's one of the big themes of the book. Who's sufficient? Later in chapter 9, he's going to say, who has enough money for all the needs of the world? In verse 12, he's going to say, who is sufficient when the thorn in the flesh is driving you crazy and you have the same problem day after day? Who can go on? And he uses different words to say, someone is sufficient. And throughout both the Gospels and in Paul's writing, these words are used. This first one is a word, hikanos, and it has the sort of nuanced meaning of being qualified, we've talked about, being competent to do the job. Who can do this? The only other place that word, that verb is used in Paul's writings, just like that, is in Colossians 1.12, where he says, uh, praying for the Colossians, he says, God has made you qualified or sufficient to receive an inheritance. What makes you qualified to receive an inheritance? What do you have to do? You have to have a, you know, like something on the wall. Just be related, right? Just be loved by the person who died, right? 
says, what makes you qualified to receive an inheritance is you're loved by your Father in heaven. That's all that qualifies you. And Paul's saying the exact same thing here. He says, I'm sufficient to do this job not because I have a letter of recommendation. That's in those first three verses. Back then, to know someone was an adequate religious person, you would have a letter of recommendation. Just like when we apply for jobs now and you get a letter of recommendation, right? It says, do I need one from you? Do I need one to give to you? What makes you think, Paul, you're qualified? He says, I look at you, Corinthians. And I see that you're actually growing in your faith. You're actually walking with the Lord. You're a letter. You're the letter of recommendation. That your lives have turned to Christ and have changed. I want to ask you a question here. I just want to bring it down. 2018, this is Paul. Do you have what it takes to do the job that you've got? I'll tell you as a parent, now as a parent of teenager and adults, when I was a parent of small children, at every stage, I didn't think I had what it takes. I mean, I was really stretched. And sometimes beyond the breaking point, it seemed. Thank God for a wife, for single parents, my goodness, do you have what it takes? Workers, church leaders, you're trying to disciple others or receive discipleship. Do you have what it takes to do it? And here's Paul's answer. I don't. In my own strength, I don't have what it takes. I, I can't do this. When you get the diagnosis or a loved one gets a diagnosis, do you have what it takes to be Christ's ambassador through that situation? Do you have what it takes to grieve appropriately or properly in situations where you have loss? Paul says you don't. You don't have it in your own strength. Look at what he says again in chapter 3. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. In the Gospel of John... Philip looks over what this boy has brought, this bread and these loaves of fish, and he says this in John 6, verse 7. He says, 200 denarii worth of bread is not even sufficient. It's not enough to do the job at hand. Same concept. It's not enough. You don't, it's not enough, Jesus. It's not going to feed them. And what happens? When Jesus Christ steps into the middle of situations, he makes what is insufficient sufficient. And that's what happened in the feeding of the 5,000. The point of that was he is the bread of life. And we expend our energy trying to make our bread and trying to make our money and trying to make our resources and our talents and our strengths go as far as they possibly can. We'll exhaust ourselves because you don't have what it takes in your own strength. As competent and as lovely and as beautiful as you are, you will get exhausted. You will get tired. You will run out of answers for whatever your situation is, at your workplaces, at home, at school. How do you be a Christian student? How do you be a friend to someone who doesn't want to be your friend? How do you do all these things? And Paul's answer is this. 
I'm insufficient. I just confess it to you right now. And this was a very capable guy, right? Paul had as much smarts and privileges and talent as anybody. And he says, this calling on me to be the apostle to the Gentiles, this calling to be your apostle, I'm insufficient for the task. But look at what he says in verse 6. He, God, has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. God makes you sufficient for the calling on your life. But hear this. He doesn't make you sufficient for that which he has not called you to do. Okay? This is why it is so important to know what God has called you to do. Because you can spend your whole life running around trying to fill obligations and do things, and if he hasn't given you the grace to do it, but he is sufficient. If you are the parent, you are the parent. And you have, you have what it takes to be the parents to the exact children God gave you. And maybe you don't think so. You don't know how to get through to that son or daughter at whatever age. You just don't know how to get to their heart. You are sufficient. You are competent. Not in the world sense. doesn't matter what degrees you have or what books you've read. Those are all good things. But you're competent when you're depending on the power of God. Just the second, I want to hit that very hard because that's Paul's main point here, but I want to talk a little bit about the covenant because he says, what I've been sufficient to be is what I've been called to be, which is the minister of a new covenant. So the two things that Paul says qualify him to be an apostle, to his critics, he says, first, look at the lives of the people to whom I've been ministering. They're changing. They're becoming like Christ. That's my letter of recommendation. Second, I've been called to be a minister of the new covenant. What is the new covenant? And he begins to compare here, and he says this, verse 6. The new covenant is not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What does that mean? The old covenant... The Mosaic Law, starting with Ten Commandments and beyond, was a wonderful thing. It told the people of God, the people of Israel, how to live, to separate themselves from the world and the the groups of people around them who were practicing things that were abominations to God. And he said, here are the things to do to separate yourself. And God gave no power in their heart to enable them to do it. So that's the old covenant is the commands of God, but what it takes is your raw obedience to do those things. And what we find it produced in the Israelites was a series of rebellions of people who fell short. You remember the Judges, the book of Judges? Here's the, the cycle. We, if you've studied the book of Judges, you know the cycle. It's an Old Testament, Old Covenant kind of cycle. You get sort of self-reliant, and we're doing all right. And so it reveals this sort of evil heart that wants to depend on yourself and say, yeah, I'm, I'm sufficient to do it. 
And then it leads to suffering, and it causes the people to to just turn away, and the distress then is so bad, they call out to God and say, help me, I'm just, I got myself in a huge mess, we're, we're falling down here. And God sends a deliverer, and it, finally when they're enslaved by the neighbors around them, this, you know, whatever, whichever deliverer it was, frees them, and they say, thank you, God, you freed us, aren't we so great? We have just, we're free, praise God, and we're so terrific. And we don't really need God that bad, you know? And the cycle goes over and over because what happens is this pointing us to our need for something ends up not necessarily changing our hearts. And so the new covenant is described one time in one of the most significant verses in all of Scripture. In the Hebrew Bible, in Jeremiah 31, also called the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, verse 31. As Israel, really Judah, is going into captivity, this prophecy is given. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, northern kingdom, the house of Judah southern kingdom, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sin no more. So what happens? The old covenant writes on stones the laws that we try and try but fail to fulfill. And the new covenant, he takes our hearts. And he comes into relationship and he begins to change us. And the question, as we close here, is this. What's our part in this new covenant? The old covenant was pretty clear. If you obey, you will be blessed. Deuteronomy 28. If you don't obey, you'll be cursed. God's part's clear. I give you the law. Your part's clear. Obey, disobey. Right? Kind of like that. That's really clear to me. Sort of like that. You know? Paul says, this is different. Because in this covenant, God does the work. He provides for your change of heart. He provides through a covenant meal. Remember what Jesus said? This body sign of the new covenant in my blood, in my body, broken for you. See, this new covenant, He lays the foundation for it. And He does the work. It's a unilateral covenant. He does the work. So what do we have to do? 
when we go to, this is a terrible example, but it's the best one I could think of. So just give me a break because I know it's going to fall short as an analogy, but go with me because there is some good things in this. When we like to go to Bush Gardens and uh, it's Lazy River, right? I don't know if it's called Lazy River there, but somewhere it is. And we like to just, I just like, that's one of my favorite things to do. Just, just get in the river. The river, kind of, you know, the stream is going, you know, you know what this is, right? You just kind of sit in the tube and go. Well, somebody built that thing. Somebody put the water in the thing. Somebody put the, the current in that thing. Somebody gives the, makes the tubes available to me. But there's still a choice. Human choice is not eliminated. But my choice is not obedience. My choice is surrender. My choice is to say, I'll jump in and let it take me where it wants to go. Our choice is to eat the meal. We do nothing to prepare the meal. Jesus prepares the entire feast for us, but you have to decide to eat it or not. And by eating the meal, what you're saying is, I will die with you, Jesus. I will give up. I will surrender my way. Try fighting the current in the lazy river. I know it doesn't seem like that much, but you, you, you go for a while, and it'll wear you out. Even as, as lazy as that river is, it'll wear you out. If you jump in, you do it God's way. The Spirit blows where it wills. Our job is to believe, it's to repent, it's to say, I'm insufficient, I'm inadequate. You, Lord Jesus, are adequate. You are completely sufficient for me. You are enough for every task that I don't think I have what it takes. You have what it takes to empower me because the new covenant is based on the Spirit living inside you, creating a heart of flesh that His law can be written on so you want to obey Him. Now, is there a struggle? Sure, there's a struggle. But rather than, this is the book of Romans, rather than the old man and the new man simply having this war all of a sudden when you surrender to him and you believe and you repent and you accept all that he has done for you begins to change the equation. It qualifies you not because of what you've done, not even because you believe. That's not what qualifies you. You're qualified because you adopt, because you become a child, because you inherit, because you receive all that was given for you. This is the qualification meal. This is what makes you competent in the kingdom. You say, ah. competence is one of our idols in our country, right? To be really good at stuff. And in the kingdom, competence is accepting that I'm good because he's made me good. Because of what he has done. Because on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took a cup of wine. When he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the 
new covenant. It's shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. When you eat this body, when you drink this blood, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we would proclaim your death in taking the bread and wine, your body and your blood. We proclaim that we are sufficient completely and totally because of you. You are enough and you've made us enough to be your children and to do what you've called us to do. And Lord, we want to depend on you. We want to surrender to the stream of the Holy Spirit. We ask you, O Lord, to fill us, to guide us, to infuse us with power. Lord, as we take your life in us, we know that it means our death, the death of the flesh, Lord, but just like that spirit that raised Christ from the dead, so it raises us to newness of life. And so we receive this, O Lord, to ourselves, these gifts of God meant for the people of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At Living Hope, we take this bread and wine, just dip one of the wafers or one of the gluten-free darker wafers, and take this, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you trust Him, if you know and this would proclaim your sufficiency in Him, come, receive this gift. After you've taken the gift, there'll be people available to pray with you over on the sides. Please, take the opportunity. There are things going on in your world that you need to bring before the Lord. Don't worry about who would see you or not see you or what they would think. It doesn't matter. What matters is that the Lord knows that responding to your cries to Him and your faith, the Lord is good and the Lord will will hear you and the Lord will respond. So let's share this meal together as we worship him. He's good, and he's ready to meet us at the point of our need. Can I have those that are serving the communion come forward, please?